0: hello
1: the embers of your seasonal bonfires may have grown dim but there's plenty in this edition of the rhs gardening podcast to spark garden lovers interest this autumn i'm guy barter chief horticulturist later house plants house leaks and growing wasabi peas at home our expert gardening advice team tackles some of the questions you've sent in about your own plants first, hedges. Hedges are a simple concept. You merely plant trees close together and cut them back repeatedly once a year or perhaps twice a year and they form a thick mossy green boundary. Within this thick greenery, birds can nest while rainfall is absorbed, preventing flooding. In recent years, hedges, particularly box hedges, have been under increasing pressure from pests and diseases, along with changing fashions, lifestyle patterns, and indeed smaller gardens. RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey recently hosted a special day of talks and demonstrations to celebrate the importance of hedges and to discuss some of the challenges and threats they face. Our producer went along to learn more.
2: My name is Raymond Everson, I'm the founder and the chairman of the Guernsey Clematis Nursery, I'm also a Vice President of the Royal Horticultural Society and I've been a member of the RHS Woody Plant Committee for many many years. Michael Marriott from David Austin Roses and myself, we were asked to make a presentation and talking about how or could Clematis and Roses be associated together as a hedge. So what we decided to do was we selected three heights of hedges. Uh, we thought of the shorter hedge, perhaps to only a meter or a meter and a half in height, which people would have for a modern town or a city garden. And so Michael selected the roses that he wanted to talk about. And then I selected the clematis that would grow to that height and naturally grow well with those particular roses. With the shorter hedges, this is really something really quite new. And uh, certainly with the taller hedges and the the tall growing roses that grow to three or four meters, some of the species type roses. Then certainly for many generations, people have used the viticella type clematis because those are summer flowering and the viticellas are multi flowering, but you can prune those clematis down every spring. But as I say, it's not until recently with the new hybrids that we've created that will produce the early and the large flowers that we've been able to do this. So it works very easily. And the combination of the clematis and roses has been a natural one. So I think it's a great combination for getting maximum amount of flower and interest onto a hedge, actually. Hi,
3: my name is Mark Gush. I'm head of environmental horticulture within the science division of the RHS. I have the privilege of talking about the work that my colleague, Dr. Tiana Blanusa, has done over the past 11 years or so where she's been heavily involved in hedge research and looked at all the ecosystem services that hedges can deliver so it's very much her work that i'm presenting today hedges have the ability to generate multiple ecosystem services because of the variety of hedges that species that are out there and the wide ranging structure and function of hedge species so that is their physical shape and also how they function in nature And those traits associated with a particular species lead to particular affinity for providing a a certain ecosystem service. So Tiana has looked at what characteristics of a particular hedge species are most effective in delivering a particular ecosystem service. She's found that dense hedges with high leaf areas with hairy leaves and rough leaves tend to capture more particle pollutants than um, smoother leaves and lesser, dense canopies where air can pass more readily through the hedge. Tiana did some experiments looking at the ability of hedges to mitigate rainfall events and act as sustainable urban drainage systems and solutions. She compared three species with a bare soil substrate. She looked at Cotoneaster, Crotagus and Thuja. She found that Cotoneaster and the Crotagus species not only prevented runoff by capturing a lot of the rainfall, but also reduced the amount of runoff through their high evapotranspiration rates and through the the rainfall capture that was able to be done by the canopy. Hedges can deliver a range of good benefits to the environment of people, and depending on what you are looking for to get out of a hedge will also influence your decision in terms of which species to go for. Broadly speaking, across the UK, the most effective hedge species include beech, Yew, holly, privet, and western cedar. But if you are looking to address a particular environmental service, for example, say pollution capture, if you live next to a busy road and would like to plant a screen to mitigate against pollutants coming into your garden, the English yew, Taxus picata, and the western red cedar, Theoplicata, are two very good species for that particular purpose. On the other hand, if you're looking to mitigate against flooding, Then Crataegus and Cotoneaster both have been shown through scientific research to be very effective in absorbing water from the soil, in capturing rainfall, and in alleviating localised flooding. So they are the two most effective species. If you, on the other hand, you want to promote biodiversity and pollinators coming to your garden, as wide a range of suitable species as possible is recommended, not not a monoculture of just one species but some of the suggestions that would do well for biodiversity provision and pollination encouragement would be Crataegus, the hawthorn, viburnum species, beech, the vagus sylvatica, and some pyrocanthus species as well. Finally, if you are wanting to cut down on noise, particularly from traffic into a particular garden, you're looking for a dense hedge species with high leaf area and thick foliage, and the yew comes out as a good contender for that particular purpose, also Japanese Barbary, the Berberis Thunbergii is a good selection, as well as Western Red Cedar, Cherry Laurel and Holly. These findings were summarised in a paper that was authored by my colleague Tiana Blanusa and is available from the RHS advice pages.
1: Online you can also find details of some of the events that are being held this winter in our RHS gardens including our exciting program of winter walks and illuminations for Christmas and the festive season one of my favorite times of the year. Winter illuminations in RHS gardens completely change the outlook for the garden. It's amazing how the water reflects, the vistas are changed, shapes are brought into contrast and the whole garden becomes a magical place. If it's a frosty day it glistens and glitters and if it's a misty evening then the light is softened and becomes quite magical. The designs change each year and the technicians who do it are incredibly good at their artistry of lighting up the gardens. It's a fantastic experience. The Wisley Glow event is on from the 7th of December to the 5th of January. At Rosemore, it runs every Thursday, Friday and Saturday from the 14th of November until the 4th of January. And finally, Harlow Car Illuminations run from Thursday, Friday and Saturday from the 21st of November until the 28th of December. And finally, it's question time. So let's go over to the RHS advisory room where the team is eagerly awaiting the arrival of the next batch of gardening queries. This advice service is free to RHS members who can ask questions online and by phone or by post or visitors can ask their questions in person at RHS flower shows and indeed at RHS gardens at certain times.
4: My name's Marcia Peacock. I'm a horticultural advisor. I'm Jenny Bowden, and I work in the
5: advisory department.
6: Hi, I'm Lee Hunt, and I am working in the advisory department at the RHS Garden Wisley. This one's from Liza Fletcher by email. How can I get the best out of my compost heap? I've started making compost, and I'm confused by the conflicting advice about the best way to do it. Food scraps or not, paper cardboard... Should I buy a specialised bin or a container? Do I need to rotate it? Is there anything else I should avoid? What should I put in it? Meat bones, twigs? Do I need to worry about rats or hedgehogs? Questions, questions. Well, she's certainly right there. But <laughs> <laughs> obviously these are all very common questions. So who'd like to pick some of them off first?
4: So I think one of the important things to remember is to have a sort of balance of the amount of carbon and nitrogen in the compost heap. So anything with a nitrogen, that's going to be your sort of green waste. So stuff from the kitchen, but definitely not cooked or processed food. So it just be peelings or, or skin from vegetables. And then the carbon element is woody stuff or cardboard or paper, shredded paper, if you've got some of that. So you definitely want more carbon than nitrogen. Anything from about sort of a quarter to a half of the entire contents of the compost to be nitrogen. And so from half to three quarters of it to be carbon. And then getting that balance right, things kind of fall into place after that.
6: What's the signs to look out for if it kind of goes wrong?
4: I think if it's sort of very wet or you've got a lot of flies around it, then it's possibly too much nitrogen. It's so if people have like a lot of grass clippings, that's a general problem. It just sort of gets very wet. And alternatively, if it's very dry and doesn't look to be much sinkage of the compost, then it's probably too much carbon.
5: There are actually two ways of composting. And I think the person who wrote this has actually come across both and mixed it all together in the question. What Lee and Marcia have been talking about is pretty much cold composting, which is what most people do. So you've got a compost heap, which ideally should be about 1.3 metre cubed. So quite a good size so that it can heat up as much as it can, but they they don't really get that hot, and they can take about six months to up to two years to fully break down, and you need to turn it at least once in the process... And it's good if it's in touch with the ground so that you get bacteria and fungi coming up from the ground rather than having it lined. But if you have rats, sometimes it's a good idea to actually have a a semi-permeable membrane that you actually bung the compost on top. It's a shame, but it still works okay. And that's the kind of compost heap that you guys are kind of explaining. The other one that I think that Liza is talking about where... She talks about bones and things going in. is hot composting where it's a closed system and you rotate the barrel and you turn it a lot and you put everything in there, any scraps from the kitchen and your balance of nitrogen and carbon, green and woody. But you can put food in it as well and it's meant to make compost in so 90 days, that kind of thing. And you can also get these hot boxes as well, which are stationary and that's a similar kind of idea but they're all the hot composting. They do work but they make a completely different product to the cold slow composting. And it's absolutely fine for the garden no problem, but because the process is slightly different you haven't got all the Outdoor bugs that are from your garden and native soil combining, etc. So it's slightly different, but if you've got a limited space, it can be quite useful. So I think that's really the way the question's been sort of put together. It crosses over both of them. For what container to use for composting for the cold form, you can use those council ones that are like a cone. But it's best to have two of them because. You can't access a compost and you can't turn it very easily. So I've always got one cooking and one starting off and then one gets used in the garden, the one that's just finishing off cooking and then I turn the contents of the other one. I take the top off, I just take the whole thing off and excavate it like that and then just plonk the lid back on again. But they can be quite good. But otherwise pallets are a good material yeah, to I use. Saying, aren't wooden they?
4: pallets, people are often sort of quite keen to get rid of them. So certainly on my allotment site, my dad and I, neither of us are carpenters by any means, but we've sort of put together three wooden pallet compost bays and, and they work really well. And they're still standing after about ten years.
6: Marciev, do you want to read out Hester's email?
4: Certainly, yeah. So Hester has written in and asked I would like some houseplants in my bathroom. It has a medium-sized frosted glass window, which is north-facing, and is quite humid at times and a little chilly at other times. Are there any that flower that might thrive in this environment or that have coloured leaves? Hmm.
6: Yeah, I think there's quite a few options here, isn't there? Actually, if it's a little chilly at times, I've discovered quite a lot of things and not too worried about that, as long as it doesn't go below about kind of 10 degrees Celsius. But I think for the average bathroom, people might be a bit not willing to go in there. So I'm hoping it is even at the coldest time, a little warmer than that. So I think it's about building layers of planting. And because it's on a window ledge, I think it's good to start with some trailing things. Now, It's an old fashioned staple and it's Tradescantia and they have elliptical leaves and they come in many different colours. So you might get ones that are just grey and fluffy furry and that's Tradescantia silamontana. Or you might get something like Sabrina that has stripes. So we're talking about purple and grey green stripes. So you might want to match this in with your decor as well. But it's quite good, you know, if you've got a pot on the side and then it can grow over the edge and it's got the room. Another plant I love for this as well is uh, the little Cerapedia, which has its very fine stems that dangle down, little round leaves with grey mottling on them. And then it has these amazing little pink flowers. They're almost, you could miss them, but they're a little bit like what we would call Dutchman's Pipes or Aristolochia in the the gardens where you do get this bulbous base, little pointy out end and they're in pale pink as well so pretty little things and if you've got white tiles you can see them against it.
5: This situation is absolutely perfect for a lot of Tropical plants because they would grow under the tree canopies, so it's actually quite the right conditions, especially at slightly higher altitudes where you've got the shade and you've also got the the cooler temperatures. So, the bromeliads, for example, now the bromeliads are often things that grow on trees, so they're epiphytes. And so, for example, Billbergia is one, which is like kind of grassy foliage with bright cerise and turquoise flowers uh, which are quite appealing and vriesia is another one so they're rosettes of sword-like leaves in a way but in rosettes and they trap the rainfall if they're in the jungle on a tree they're very very vibrant flowers which are bracts really they're adapted flowers and the flowers are sort of inside so oranges reds yellows and the flowers last for months they're not too difficult to grow and Symbidium orchids they come from slightly higher altitudes they've got big strappy leaves, and they really like the cold to get them flowering each year, so they can actually live outdoors until the temperature starts to drop. Then you bring them back into the house and then they'll flower in the house
6: and keep your ears peeled. Because we've got a special event coming up called Houseplant Takeover at RHS Garden Wisley. And there's a houseplant special coming on our podcast series as well, so do tune in for that. Ron Asprey from Worksworth in Derbyshire writes Aeoniums, are these just the same as house leaks? How do I divide or propagate them? I'd like to cover a small shed with them as a reminder of farm buildings that I used to see when I was a child. So house leeks and aeoniums, are they the same thing?
4: No, I think maybe this is where sometimes the common names cause a bit of confusion because aeoniums can be referred to as a tree house leek or a house leek tree. A house leek is usually a sempervivum, but um, an aeonium, some of the species, especially arboreum, does look a bit like a sempervivum on a trunk. So I think that's where the confusion is there.
6: What do they look like, these two? Because we've kind of got the the height right.
4: Both of them are succulent plants, so they have sort of quite fleshy leaves. But actually, when he was asking about propagating, aeoniums, unlike a lot of sort of very fleshy succulent plants, they don't tend to sort of be propagated from leaf cuttings. There's just not enough either water or flesh in there to to root just from a leaf. Against Sempervivums, I think if you're very determined, you, you can propagate them from leaf cuttings, but people generally just sort of take away the little offsets that they produce naturally.
6: There's two things. One that we do not going to end up with um, things growing up to Aeoniums could grow up to six feet, couldn't they? So um, if you could imagine all those stalks sticking off the edge of the roof, it's probably not what he was imagining. He was probably imagining the carpet. Or, I think
4: the sempervivums is yeah you make what he saw. Yeah, and, yeah, and they're uh, quite low.
6: Moss. you know we've established it's sempervirus. How would we get those established on the roof?
4: I have heard that some people, you know, especially if there's a little layer of moss or even just sort of natural detritus on the roof, they will just throw the plants up. And, you know, if they kind of, land the right way up they would sort of root in naturally obviously you don't want to spend a lot of money buying plants and just throwing them onto your roof so you could if it's not a big area just build a a little layer so for sempervivums they would probably only need about five centimetres of some kind of inorganic growing matter so um perlite or very crushed concrete or something like that, just so that they can anchor their roots into it. And also something that's quite lightweight as well. Georgina Silver is in Middlesex and says, wasabi.
5: Can I grow wasabi peas in the UK? Do I need a greenhouse? Very rarely is wasabi grown it is the world's most costly veg it's very difficult to grow and there is a producer in Britain it's called the Wasabi Company and it's in a secret location because it is so valuable so you can buy plants you can buy roots of it and you take your chances and you have a go at it it comes as roots and and it has great big leaves that can get eaten by slugs very easily. It's their favourite food, apparently. You'd want to grow it. It's not very hardy. I think you'd want to grow it under cover, and it likes shade. And it comes from the river edges and stream edges in Japan. So if you could recreate that, you might be able to grow wasabi. But they are available to buy little plants. Fairly expensive. But yeah, have a go at it. Nice, deep, rich soil. Can you add anything, Lee? Yeah, I
6: I think absolutely. The the peas are really easy to grow. And I've attempted to add my sort of shop-bought wasabi on the top of that and kind of make itself easy because they are so cheap to buy, wasabi peas in supermarkets. I kind of think, well... It's fun to have a go at these things, (laughs) but there are limits. And instead, I'd suggest going to Tsukiji Market in Tokyo and actually seeing it, uh, because I've done that, and that's a lot of fun. Uh, (laughs) So I think there's perhaps easier ways to enjoy life. So thanks to Marcia and Jenny for answering those questions. And we look forward to you tuning in again to our next podcast, answering your questions. You'll find links to all the things that we've been discussing on our podcast page of the website.
1: Well, that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in a fortnight with a books podcast special. I'll be joined by some of my RHS colleagues to discuss the best garden-related titles to give and keep this Christmas. Plus, we'll take a nostalgic wander through children's books, past and present. Books to inspire children with the beauty and pleasure of gardens. The perfect listening for a chilly winter's evening. Until then... From me, Guy Barter, and all the podcast team, goodbye.
0: I'm walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, i found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the Rhydon sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the Rhydon and I've freed up more of my time to spend with them, and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com.
1: Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days, plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden Magazine,
2: and so much more